Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway, and in these podcasts we'll be examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have, and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved, and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in these two special episodes, we're looking back at some of the key messages and highlights from a fantastic range of guests. So let's start with David Linden MP and that referendum mandate. This is 14 years into government. This is the fourth time the SNP in terms of a Scottish government has subjected itself to the ballot box and to have such a resounding mandate on a very clear, unequivocal message of putting Scotland's future in Scotland's hands is something that any British government that respects democracy could not ignore. But more than that, you know, the, the opposition here at Westminster, the Conservative government, said that a vote for the SNP would be a vote for an independence referendum. And do you know what, Drew? They're right. And that's why it's so important that the Westminster government concedes that that mandate that we've got last week is utterly unquestionable and that people in Scotland should have the choice of the future. But the Tories have said it wasn't about Indy-Ref 2 during the the, the last election. They, they never mentioned it. It was an afterthought. That's, uh, I think I'm almost directly quoting Michael Gove when he said that it was, uh, it was really all about COVID and nothing else for them. Well, I mean, I think most of your listeners will have had their, their leaflets to the letterboxes <laughs> suggesting the only way to stop a second referendum was to defeat the SNP at the ballot box. I think it's quite clear that by winning 85% of the constituency seats, that that's a pretty clear endorsement of Scotland having the right to choose its own future. But I think the important thing here as well is that, you know, the, the, a vote for the SNP at the, the elections last year wasn't a vote for independence, it was a vote for the principle of Scotland having the opportunity to join that lifeboat from a, a post Brexit Britain run by Boris Johnson and hurtling towards austerity economics. Um, and surely any United Kingdom government that wants to respect democracy, certainly any United Kingdom government that advocates a, a proud Global Britain brand w- would be willing to t- respect democracy. Um, and, and anybody who professes to be a Democrat would surely agree that by having a majority of MSPs in Scottish Parliament, I think over 70 MSPs now support the concept of Scotland having the right to choose its future. This isn't about yes or no, this isn't about independence of the Union, this is simply about people having the opportunity to choose their future Um, and and I was was really reflecting on this in the the, the flight down to Westminster this week, this concept that you know back at the, you know, 1999 the the first election of the Scottish Parliament, only about 30 odd MSPs supported uh, Scottish independence or the idea of a referendum, we're now in a situation where just 20 years on, over 70 members of the Scottish Parliament who've been democratically elected support that, there's a clear majority and it's therefore incumbent upon this Westminster government to listen to that majority and give Scotland the right to choose its own future. Here's Stephen Gethins talking about how Westminster fails the nations of the UK, and particularly Scotland, on the world stage. So, for example, Brendan O'Hara, your colleague Brendan O'Hara, um, the MP for Argyle and Butte, put down a parliamentary question, I think it was last year, and he asked the UK government what they were doing to promote links with the diaspora using Scotland's soft brand. And very little came back. And they said three of their embassies had had burned suppers, for instance, which is a great way to engage with the diaspora and have that soft power for a burned supper. Um, And it's once a year. So I'm not saying that they should be promoting exclusively something Scottish, but Scotland has that brand. And there were events were only held in the embassies of Latvia, 
Hungary and Georgia. And then I checked where the ambassadors came from, and all the ambassadors were Scottish. And as somebody said to me from the United States, said, if, if, the, if the UK is going to stay together, why don't you play the whole team? And the whole team includes Scotland with its um, diaspora, with its international brand, with its profile, in the same way as Wales and Northern Ireland and, 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 and different parts of England have got a really... Um, I've, I've got many fine contributions to make to the UK's soft power. And yet it's something that's being missed. And I think, it, and, and actually Lord Howell, who's the chair of the International Affairs Committee in the, in the House of Lords, did a review of the book and he talked about, couldn't we be making more of Scotland's profile mm. and its brand and said, for too long, Scotland's been taken for granted. And it's not just Scotland that gets treated this way. Liz Savile-Roberts, MP, gave the view from Wales. Well, I think I'd take the step back and, and, and echo what one of Plaid's, well, of course, Plaid's first Member of Parliament, Gwynbor Evans, actually said, that when you're talking from Westminster's point of view, when you hear Britishness, what he actually means is, is Englishness. And that um, this, particularly with this government, that there's only the very th sharp, the, the, the now, very isn't it? Yeah. only the thinnest, mm. tiniest, mm. scratchiest veneer mm -hmm. over what we actually we're talking up England, and then the rest of you can just be grateful for being associated with the wonderfulness that is England. <laughs> I can say that with a degree uh, of com well, not confidence, but a degree of confidence in myself. I am from London originally. You see, mm -hmm. I am from an English background, and. I can say that in some ways that some of my, my compatriots, as of now, in Wales yeah. are more uncomfortable with saying, but I do, I, I know the English attitude and um, there is this sense, of course, I mean, my client's leader, Adam Price, has, has written a book called The, the Last Colony, Wales, The Last Colony, uh, mm -hmm. well, and The First Colony as well, in the sense that, that we are a possession of England and we are supposed to be grateful in that role mm -hmm. and then we take what we get. But anything in which we, 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 we grow our own ambitions is regarded as a threat, so that all ambitious Welsh men or women should be looking towards England to realise their their fantastic, their mm -hmm. glittering careers. Um, no, that's, you know, there, there are so many problems associated with England's refusal to give up on the, the glory of the empire and all the language that goes with the empire. And of course, that actually is something that is... We're seeing that played out just now as they're trying to justify the failures of Brexit. Yes, and, uh, yeah. Um, and we're using this strange nostalgia. If we're all, you know, actually, I think everybody who is who is still in work. There is nobody who's not retired, and I imagine mm. many people who are retired. Nobody's actually lived through these these great times of the past that they're referring mm -hmm. to, this sort of this adoration, adulation towards Winston Churchill. Even though uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg might like to have might lived to through them. Might imagine that he could yes, somehow yes. go into some yeah. extraordinary time, time <laughs> machine. Um, and this, again, I mean, what is striking with this government is this, this militarization, mm -hmm. the, 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 the way that we, we are supposed to fall in line with these certain idols that we look to, these certain reference mm -hmm. points. And if you don't, you are unpatriotic mm -hmm. and you will have the wrath of social media as mm -hmm. guided by the right wing thrown at you. Mm -hmm. That was Liz Savile-Roberts, MP. Alan Brown, MP, pointed out that Westminster really only relies on rhetoric rather than long-term planning and action to support the potential of Scotland's energy sector. That whole um, approach has meant that, you know, Scotland being focused on renewable energy, on doing these things to tackle climate change from very early times uh, through the, uh, the SNP government from 2007 onwards, has meant that Scotland's now generating nearly 100% of its energy from renewable sources, very close to, to that at the moment. That's quite an achievement with one hand tied behind your back, isn't it? It's a fantastic achievement. It was a target 
that was initially set and said it couldn't be met, but the Scottish Government were doing that well, they actually increased their target to the 100,000 renewable energy uh, generation by 2020. We only marginally missed it, 97%, but was what we achieved, which is as good as hitting the target. And as you say, that's one hand tied behind our back, because in 2015, the Tory government pulled the plug on onshore wind generators being able to apply for the contracts for different options. So that was at the same time they pulled the plug on the carbon capture storage uh, at Peterhead, a billion pound betrayal of Peterhead. Sorry, carry on. Uh, Yes, you're absolutely right. They betrayed Peterhead and these are the things the UK government always talk about being world leaders and they're not, it's just a phrase they use and they could have been world leading carbon capture and storage. We could have that up and running at Peterhead. It's now pleasing to see the SSE and Equinor think they can make that plant work. But that basically we've been set back years and years and that's because of either inaction, unambitious from the UK government or just Treasury meddling because that's what happened with the carbon capture. Treasury just pulled the plug. As you rightly say, even if you get going now with it, what we've lost, and and this is critical years in terms of climate change, um, we've lost six, seven, eight years, maybe nine years, ten years in terms of where we could have been um, as to where it will be, uh, and we don't even know what the scale of that is going to be. So if a different choice had been made to continue that, as was promised, I think this was a big promise during the 2014 independence referendum, and then it was pulled away in 2015. If a different promise, if that promise had been kept, we could have been much further ahead. Much further ahead, and there have been made huge inroads into the just transition for the oil and gas sector, so we've been further ahead in climate change, Part of the just transition would have been accelerated and importantly we'd have our own expertise, knowledge that would then be exported to other countries who are following suit in carbon capture and storage. So realise a wasted opportunity that they didn't save a billion pounds by pulling that money, they've actually cost money and we could have, that, that money could have been regenerated in terms of our export potential. Here's Brendan O'Hara, MP and Anne Ballinger of Scottish CND, talking about why Scotland neither needs nor wants nuclear weapons on the Clyde. As a politician, you know, I think, you know, there is absolutely no military, economic or moral case to be made for, for nuclear weapons. And, you know, the, the idea of the, the United Kingdom's independent nuclear deterrent is, is, is utterly nonsense. And I think we've got to get to the number of it. And it's... It's a political weapon. Trident is, I think, in many ways, it's it's like the UK itself. It's so backward-looking, and it sees the world as it once was, and not the world that we currently live in. And I, I think that when it comes to to this government and many many UK governments, it's almost a, a post-imperial power desperately trying to trying to come to terms with a changing world. And trying to find its place in that new world, and and it's decided to with this renewal of Trident and this increasing of, of the warheads, you know, it's embarking on a desperate search for a better yesterday. What you're seeing is, you know, we, we are sacrificing everything on this military and political ego trip that is more to do with status than defence, and disgracefully is being paid for on the backs of the poor. In, in my opinion, Westminster used these weapons of mass destruction to retain their seat on the Security Council, the UN Security Council. Now, that is their purpose, I think. And they they don't have at any time considered 
the impact that it has on Scotland or on, as Brenda says, the poor in our society. Mm. The amount of money that they spend on weapons of mass destruction that could build, for example, 50,000 affordable homes, Mm -hmm. 14 hospitals, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. They don't even consider that. They just see it as their way of, of retaining the power they've had in the past and their, their status seat on the Security Council. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually because it's in Scotland, they don't really care about the, the lack of safety mm-hmm. or the, the potential mm-hmm. hazard should an accident occur. And Bredna? Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the difference is that what we have in Scotland, we have a, a, a consensus, a, almost a settled consensus against nuclear weapons, whether it's Scottish Government, Scottish Parliament, the SNP, the Green Party, Scottish TUC, swathe of Scottish civic society, the Church of Scotland, the Roman Catholic Church of Scotland, many, many other... And that, that's, true of, that's true of opinion polls as well. I think there was an opinion poll showing nearly 60% of the Scottish public were against nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, and I think that voice of Civic Scotland says, we do not want these here. And it's always been thus. And there's a, a very different mindset about the possession and the stationing of nuclear weapons in Scotland than there, than there seems to be elsewhere in the UK. Um, but I think Scotland really does almost speak with a, with one voice on this, saying that we do not want these weapons of mass destruction. And, and I say that as someone... Who, who lives in the Roseneath Peninsula, less than five miles from both Coolport and uh, and Faslane. Along with the moral issues, what is the cost, and and what do you, how do you think that money could be used elsewhere? Uh, in two thousand and nineteen, um, Scotia CND did a, a a series of events called Scotland Not Trident, and in that we looked at housing, um, climate change, jobs. NHS, education and transport and how if we weren't paying what we reckon is about the Scottish percentage is about 6 to 10 million, billion sorry, Mm -hmm. towards the cost of Trident, then what we could do with that money Mm -hmm. and the figures were uh, absolutely terrifying, I mean Mm -hmm. 50,000 affordable homes Mm -hmm. 20 new hospitals and on and on and on, a huge amount, and it's dreadfully wasted, and it could completely transform. Anne Ballinger from Scottish CND there. Listen out next time for the second of our Scotland's Choice highlights. My thanks to all of our guests for taking part, and once again to you for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.